The scripture is found on page eight and nine of your bulletin. We read today about events that happened that echoes down through all the ages to today. First, I pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that reveals your love, your actions in time and space. We ask that you work in our midst through this word that we hear and listen to and through its explanation through pastor. In Jesus' name, amen. From Genesis 16, verses 1 to 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham, Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be with his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. The word of the Lord. Just a couple things about the bulletin that you have in your hands this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, or if you're not uh, getting our e- uh, newsletters during the week, uh, you, can, uh, find out a, you can find a welcome card on the back page, and I invite you to fill that out, and there's a basket on the back welcome table where you can put that. And also, just want to highlight one announcement that you'll find on page 16. 
Uh, in two weeks, uh, we're having another movie night uh, at Marsha Bosher's home. We're going to be uh, watching the movie Babette's Feast, which kind of fits with the Thanksgiving theme, if you know anything about that movie. And um, uh, there's some new thing that we're trying and getting together to watch a movie and have discussion around it. Uh, and if you're interested in learning more about that or if you have a suggestion to make for a movie, uh, I invite you to talk to Marsha or to Jay Knight or to Alex and uh, Noel Miranda, uh, who are helping select the movies. Uh, a few weeks ago, we watched uh, a, a movie uh, called Of Gods and Men, and it's based on uh, the true story of a group of monks uh, who were living in Algeria in the 1990s. And these monks spent their days serving uh, the local Muslim community uh, there in Algeria, but as the Algerian civil war starts, they're threatened by a group of Islamic extremists who are fighting the government. And the focus of the film is on the monks as they wrestle with whether they should stay in Algeria and continue their work despite the danger or return to France where it's safe. And near the end of the movie, there is a scene in which they come to their decision. They're gathered around a, a table that's arranged like a, a Last Supper painting. They're drinking wine and they're listening to Tchaikovsky's uh, Swan Lake on an old uh, cassette player. Uh, and uh, writing in The Guardian, uh, the, the reviewer Peter Bradshaw uh, said this uh, about the scene. The camera does, not, does, the camera does nothing uh, but pan slowly around the table, minutely watching these men's careworn faces as they absorb the mystery of their own deaths. It is perhaps one of the most sensational things I have seen on the big screen. Many who have watched this scene find it overwrought, overdone, and the Tchaikovsky unsubtle. Well, maybe. But each time I have watched it, frankly, I have become overwhelmed with an emotion I can't possibly describe. I am almost tempted to say that cinema audiences should be required to stand during this sequence, like concert, concert goers during the Hallelujah Course in Handel's Messiah. So if you see of God's and man, you get to the scene, I hope you'll, you'll stand up, follow this suggestion. But I read this quote because it illustrates two things. First, it, it reminds us that even in our secular age, in which so many people doubt that there is anything beyond uh, this material world, that a story of love and sacrifice uh, still has tremendous power uh, to move us. Uh, Jamie Smith calls this a crack in the secular that points to a, a deeper meaning beyond what we can see and touch. And, and second, uh, this scene is a, a wonderful illustration of the church season uh, that we're entering now, the, the season of Advent, uh, which is all about waiting, struggling, uh, coming to the end of ourselves and our abilities, needing God to act for us. In our extended uh, seven-week Advent season this year, uh, we're learning about the journey of faith from the Old Testament patriarch Abraham. And as we see in our text today, this does not mean that Abraham is a model for us at every point. Uh, far from it. Uh, this story in Genesis 16 is really one of the saddest and, and the darkest moments in the whole Bible. Uh, but if you will wait, 
And if you will sit with this text, I do believe that it has a powerful message for us and, and for our own struggles of faith. So that's what I want to invite us to do together here today. Let's begin by considering the problem that Abram and Sarai faced. Uh, Pastor Mike showed last week in, in chapter 15 that the Lord promised Abram a son to be his heir. Up to this point in the story, Abram was already 75 years old and he had no children, but God promised to make him into a great nation to bless the whole world through his family. And now, in chapter 16, it's 10 years later, and there is no son. Sarai is childless, and she's very clear on the source of the problem in verse 2. The Lord has kept me from having children. Anyone who has experienced infertility or, or miscarriages knows how painful the experience can be. In the ancient world, Abram and Sarai's inability to start a family goes to the heart of their identities. The Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham uh, writes about what it meant to be childless in that culture. He says, It was a serious matter for a man to be childless in the ancient world, for it left him without an heir. But it was even more calamitous for a woman. To have a great brood of children was the mark of success as a wife. To have none was failure. So throughout the ancient East, polygamy was resorted to as a means of dealing with childlessness. But wealthier wives preferred the practice of surrogate motherhood, whereby they allowed their husbands to father a child with their maids. The mistress could then feel that her maid's child was her own and exert some control over it in a way that she could not if her husband simply took a second wife. So this explains why Sarai says, go sleep with my slave, perhaps I can build a family through her. Hagar is a, is a surrogate here for Sarai, and, and Sarai is following this culturally accepted means by which to deal with their infertility. Now we're going we're gonna to come back to the morality of this in a minute. For now, I just want you to see the dilemma as they felt it. The Lord has kept me from having children. On the one hand, God has made very great promises to them. On the other hand, he does not appear to be fulfilling those promises. They've been waiting 10 years, and as the story unfolds, it will be another 14 years until the promised son, Isaac, arrives in chapter 21. This is hard. It's a moment in which you can understand their desperation. For many Christians, the idea that God would bring us into an experience like this as a part of our journey of faith is very hard for us to accept. But throughout Christian history, many have testified to this reality. Some have called it uh, the dark night of the soul. Uh, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, uh, the author Pete Scazzaro calls it simply the wall. A season in which God brings us face to face with our own limitations and our inabilities. He says, uh, for most of us, the wall appears through a crisis that turns our world upside down. 
It comes perhaps through a divorce, a job loss, the death of a close friend or family member, a cancer diagnosis, a disillusioning church experience, a betrayal, a shattered dream, a wayward child, a car accident, an inability to get pregnant, a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled, a dryness or loss of joy in our relationship with God. We question ourselves, God, the church. We discover for the first time that our faith does not appear to work. We have more questions than answers. We don't know where God is, what he is doing, where he is going, how he is getting us there, or, or when this will be over. In times like these, we find that often our, our character or our maturity is insufficient for the external circumstances that we face. We're forced to examine ourselves and our relationship with God in, in new ways. My own wall came in 2014. My father had recently died of bladder cancer. Soon after that, I started a, a new position as the pastor of a small, struggling church plant. We moved into a small apartment that was not a great fit for our family. Linda and I were facing some serious challenges at home and in our marriage. I suffered from anxiety and panic attacks. I felt like I had been emptied out inside. If it wasn't for Linda's insistence that I go to counseling and the counselor's advice that I take some anxiety medication while I work through my experience, I'm not sure how I would have gotten through it. It took several years, but very slowly, I began to see what God had for me to learn in this time of struggle and darkness. I had to learn how to grieve. I began to recognize patterns that had been set in my life from an early age that led me to pursue achievement and success to prove myself to others. I started to see the false expectations that I had for those around me, and especially for God. I was convicted that I wanted what I could get from God more than I wanted God himself. So whether it's an intense season of facing your own failure and weakness, as I experienced, or, or it's just the reality of our everyday limitations, the scriptures teach us that God has a purpose for us in times like these. He is doing work inside of us that can't happen in any other way. Our temptation in these times, however, is to find a solution of our own that will make the process easier and, and less painful. We seek a shortcut over or around or under the wall. That's what Abram and Sarai were doing as they came up with this plan to have a child through Hagar. In the way that the biblical author tells this story, it's clear that they've made the wrong decision. And why do I say this? It's because there are very clear allusions here to Genesis chapter 3 and the, the fall of humanity in Adam and Eve. Let me show you what I mean. First, in verse 2, when the text says Abram agreed to what Sarai said, uh, literally, uh, we could translate it, Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
The Hebrew here is exactly the same as Genesis 3, verse 17, when God says to Adam, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree. Again, there, it's because you listened to the voice of your wife. This is an unusual expression, shema l'kol, that only occurs in these two passages, in Genesis 16 and in Genesis 3. So the narrator wants us to see that Abram listening to Sarai is just like Adam listening to Eve. Second, what follows in verse 3 also parallels the earlier story. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband. It's just like Eve in Genesis 3, 6, when she took the fruit and gave it to her husband. What does this mean? It means that though their scheme was totally acceptable in the culture in which they live, the biblical author says they are deeply deceived. They're departing from the path of faith. Instead of waiting on God's timing, they are taking taking matters into their own hands. What makes this most clear is their treatment of Hagar. This is the saddest part of the story. We're told Hagar's name in verse 1, but Abram and Sarai never speak her name. To Sarai, she is only my slave, in verses 2 and 5. And to Abram, she is your slave, in verse 6. For Abram and Sarai... Hagar is not a person, but a thing to be used to accomplish their goal. Ironically, their goal is a religious one, seeking the fulfillment of God's promises. This shows us, doesn't it, the the subtlety of human sin and brokenness? We can be deceived even when we tell ourselves that we're doing something for God. The results of Sarai and and Abram's actions could not be clear. It leads only to the destruction of relationships. Hagar despises Sarai. Sarai blames Abram. And finally, Abram wipes his hands of it all, leading to Sarai's abuse of Hagar and, and Hagar's flight. This shows us what happens when we take something good, even a gift from God like children, and make it ultimate in our lives and worship it as an idol. We will do anything to get it. We sacrifice our relationships. We do not treat other people as valuable image bearers of God. We use them to get what we really want, whether it's power or sex or money, whatever it is that is really driving our behavior. When God asks us to wait, even when it is hard, He's inviting us to find our deepest fulfillment in him, to trust him and to walk by faith, not by sight. What does this look like? It looks like sitting with our own grief or the grief of a friend without trying to fix it. It looks like living within the limits that God has set for us, whether those limits are physical or financial or relational. It looks like seeking God's will in God's way and in God's timing. But we're often like Abram and Sarai, aren't we? 
we resist being in this kind of place. But the promise is, when we will stop and, and we'll accept where God has put us, it's possible for him to break through to us in a new way. There's a wonderful scene in the classic film, The, the Shawshank Redemption, about the wrongly imprisoned man, uh, Andy Dufresne. Uh, one day, in an act of defiance against the prison authorities, Andy locks himself in the prison warden's office and plays Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro over the prison's loudspeakers. As the warden bangs on uh, his door in anger, uh, the whole prison comes to a stop as the inmates listen to this heavenly music. Now, though they are locked up as hardened criminals, for a moment they share joy uh, together. And one of Andy's fellow inmates, Red, his friend, comments in a voiceover, I have no idea to this day what those two Italian ladies were singing about. Truth is, I don't want to know. I like to think they were singing about something so beautiful it can't be expressed in words and makes your heart ache because of it. This is what I think God wants for us in our own dark places that may even feel like prisons to us. He desires to break through to us in his, in his beauty and in his grace. This is what we see in the last part of the story uh, through Hagar. Hagar goes into the desert where the angel of the Lord meets her. And this angel says three important things to Hagar in this encounter. First, in verse 8, he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Unlike Abram and Sarai, the angel names Hagar. According to Bruce Waltke, a renowned Harvard-trained Old Testament scholar, this is the only time in all of ancient Near Eastern literature that a woman is called by name by a deity. The God of the Bible knows Hagar's name and invites her into conversation. He recognizes her humanity and her suffering. Second, he speaks a hard word of challenge to her in verse 9. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. He recognizes her suffering, but he does not remove it. This is hard for us to understand. It appears that God is more interested in Hagar knowing that he can sustain her in her suffering than taking her away from it. But this brings us to the, the third word that he speaks. He sends her with an amazing promise in verse 10 saying, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. He announces that she is pregnant with Ishmael, whose name means God hears. God has heard her cries and seen her pain, and he gives to Hagar the same promise that he gave to the man Abram, a great family with children too numerous to count. And in response, Hagar becomes the first person in Scripture to name God. She says in verse 13, You are El Roi. You are the God who sees me. Hagar, a woman, a single mother, an Egyptian slave, 
is the one person in this story who responds to God in faith. The Bible puts two options before us when we face our own limits, whatever they may be. We can be like Sarai and Abram, insisting that we know what we need and we just have to get it any way that we can. Or we can be like Hagar, who has nothing, who struggles, who's not blameless either, but is one whom the Lord calls by name. When Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. I think he had people like Hagar in mind. Friends, this is the invitation of the gospel. The message of Christianity is not you can do it, but God has done it for you. And if this is true, then we are free. We are free from the need to control events and people to get what we want. In humility, we can hold our own opinions loosely. And we won't be controlling or prideful. Instead, we'll have the kind of mindset that we see in the Apostle Paul, who could say in his letter to the Philippians, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. When you seek God's will above all, you have a security and an identity that no one can take from you. This is what we see in Jesus, who was willing to go to the cross, who experienced the worst circumstances imaginable because he trusted that his father would be faithful to him, even in death. He invites you and me into the same kind of relationship with our Heavenly Father when you know God's love is for you, even in your mess, in your weakness, in your failure, then you're truly free and you can love others in the same generous, self-giving way. This is what we see in the lives of Christians down through history. Wherever Christianity has spread and really taken root, it has empowered people like Hagar, women, the enslaved, the disenfranchised. I'll end just with just one small illustration of that. In the mid-2nd century, the Roman emperor had decreed that it was illegal to become a Christian. And despite this, a noble woman named Perpetua had come to Christ along with one of her slave girls named Felicity. They were arrested and they were brought to a local arena to face their punishment. And when it was time, they walked hand in hand into the arena to be mauled by wild animals and then executed. In Roman society, this was not typical behavior. You did not walk hand in hand with your slaves or humble yourself to die with them. But this is what the early Christians found themselves doing. And the story of Perpetua and Felicity was told and and retold by Christians as the church grew. Friends, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you are saying to us this morning. That each one of us in our own unique place, in our own story, 
uh, in our lives wherever you have put us, that we would hear your word of grace, that we would know your love, that you stand with us uh, in the midst of lives that can sometimes feel so upside down, uh, so full of struggle and and difficulty, uh, which we have so many questions and are not sure where we're going. Uh, We know uh, through stories like this, through the testimony of your scriptures, through the the witness of your people, that you're not a God who stays far away from people who are in these situations, who are suffering, but you are one who is always moving towards us in your grace and your love. Uh, we, We see that in Jesus on the cross above all, and so we pray that you'd Keep us near the cross, uh, even today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.